I saw one group of about 17 bulls that were right on the highway, still in velvet. Saw my first elk calf of the year. There was a bear on a bison carcass across the river. I looked out in the river and here comes this big boar's head floating through the Yellowstone River and he was swimming right at me. And I shot out of the sleeping bag in my underwear. So I'm booking down the highway as fast as I can, four miles down the road and the thing finally stopped. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, Ron Hayes is in Wyoming, Michael Morrow is in Anchorage, Alaska, me, I'm Mark Raycroft in Ontario, Canada. This week's podcast, we are going to take you on an adventure along with Ron Hayes on his recent trip to Yellowstone National Park. But before that, guys, let's jump in. Let's get into the pro tips for this week, our updates, our spinoffs. Ron, fire away. What's this week's pro tip? So one of the things that we'll talk about in this episode is I went to Yellowstone with the intent of trying to get some more video content and kind of testing out the D850's video capabilities. And I was shooting with a 200 to 500 and a 600 F4 on this trip. One of the things that I ran into is a lot of the action was around water. And I don't have, because the uh, objective lens on that 200 to 500 is so big and I haven't had the 600 for very long, I don't have a drop in yet. So I didn't have a filter, didn't have a polarizer at all to throw on there around water. And knowing that we're headed to Alaska in the, the next few weeks and going to be shooting on water, uh, one of the things that I did is I went out and grabbed a polarizer and I I like or keep good glass on my lenses if I'm going to use it. So I got a Singray. It is a Singray LB color combo polarizer. So it, it pops the color and then cuts the reflection on the water. So I'm really looking forward to using this in Alaska. It's one of the things when, we, when Mike and I went up to Homer to shoot the eagles and we ended up having some opportunities on sea otters. One of the things that I was kind of disappointed on or about was that there was a lot of reflection and it, it made those shots fairly harsh. And this thing, I think, will do the trick. Cuts the light one stop, so you have to keep that in consideration. But I haven't had any trouble shooting this camera at higher ISOs, and I know we're going to be out there shooting all day. So I don't think a one-stop cut in light is going to hurt anything. It is 95 millimeters, so they're not cheap. It was about... $500, but I think it will work good for video and as well as still photos when we're in those full overhead light type situations. So I'll be doing a review on this as well. The rep from Singray did not give it to me. It's not a sponsored item. I paid for it. Um, he gave me a little bit of a break on the price, but they did want some feedback on using it for wildlife and with wildlife images. So that's one thing that I'm going to try to make sure that I do and, and try it out in a couple different scenarios while we're up there. But strong recommendation. Yep, It'll be used for stills and So you're going to shoot stills video. with it too? Yep. Just when we're cutting the reflection off the water. But just when we're on water, just when you want to cut that reflection? Oh, I, I'm a child of the Did set. you get a fanny pack too to put it 70s, in when you're I got fanny packs laying down just about anybody I know. 
that's the problem I have when I'm dealing with all these neutral density filters is you, you know, you're changing with the light and then all of a sudden you have, it's like, what do you, where do you put it? And I've kind of come up with the system and I started with the fanny pack, but it, yeah, I'll show you while we're up there and you may have it. Know, Cause um, I'm using three or four different Canon professional services did it as a giveaway. It's kind of a little sling pack from uh, think tank and it's got a, it's got a couple different pockets, you know, one big one for a body and with a, a body and a lens on it. But then it's got a couple pockets that are kind of made for filters and, you know, they, they fit in there nicely and you've got easy access to them. The problem of course is I don't want to be dinking around with that as you know, that much while you're out there. It is, it is kind of made for that. I'll bring it up with me for this trip. Out in left field here, we're going into an adventure pro tip because Whoa. that's part of what we do. We have this gear, we go on these adventures, the wildlife photos are the results, the highlights that we take home to relive over and over again and to share with other people and hopefully clients. But I like to frequently get lost in the wilderness, not literally lost, but out of the way in the wilderness and be doing more and more interior trips, canoe trips, for instance. And I've always carried a big backpack, hiking backpack, a decent one with, you know, all of them have to have a good waistband support, take the weight off your shoulders as much as possible, balance it on your back, good shoulder straps, all adjustable, lots of pockets, easy to get into gear. The problem is, you know, on a canoe trip, you may end up in the canoe while it pours rain for hours as you're going from one place to another, you get stuck out, a storm comes in. And sure, you know, I bought the extra waterproof bag that goes over the backpack while it lays in the canoe. But what also happens is the canoe gets water in it from the rain. So you have to envelop the whole backpack to guarantee all your gear stays dry. And it's important if you're on a four, five, or 10-day wilderness trip that your gear stays dry, especially if there's a few days of rain forecasted. So this year I've switched out from, I had an Osprey pack, which I use for a lot of my hiking trips. And I, you know, I often, this is how complicated some of this gets for the portages. I'll have my camera pack on my chest, which is a smaller think tank pack, and then the Osprey pack on my back. But I've switched out this year. Again, shout out to Bill, my, often my interior canoe tripping buddy. He had this dry bag which is a heavy-duty rubber bag with a great backpack support system for shoulder straps, waist straps, adjustability. And this thing folds over on the top, locks in with the buckles, and is virtually waterproof. It can snap in to the canoe. So we put it in the canoe, you snap it in so that if there is an event where we capsize for whatever reason, it stays with the boat. We don't have to go searching for it. So when we get back to shore, we can get everything upright, everything's dry. If for some reason, and this is way out there, if it floated away from the boat, it's bright orange. And so we'd be able to spot it and see it and recover it quite easily and it would float as well. So I've switched to a dry bag and yeah, it, it just simply helps for these interior trips to keep the gear dry. It's big enough that if I needed to, I could even put my think tank in it and remove some other gear, lots of space. That was gonna be my question. Because mm -hmm. that's what I do. I have a couple of those big bags like that. And right. I just put my back, backpack inside that pack whenever you're near water. And then when you're not near water, then you can go back to your regular backpack and still have the portability. Because there's not a lot of structure to those dry bags. So you 
having it in your regular backpack right. still keeps so I, structure and that's that's, to keep that's all your a good practice to do so you would have to take things if you're on a long trip i mean the dry bags easily filled with stuff so to switch it out put the think tank in if the weather's that bad i do carry a few just not not garbage bags unless that's all i have going because you can't see in them i'll get those clear blue recycling bags and i can put gear in that i can see what's in it if I need to take anything out of the dry bag to put camera gear in, in that worst case scenario. But the dry bags are, it's a big tube, it's heavy rubber, it's, they're quite durable, and it's, it's a good way to go just for peace of mind for these longer trips, because you will, or we often get inclement weather that can last, and it's no fun having everything wet, nor stressing about the camera gear. So if it's gonna happen, or, or if the water's you know a little rougher than we're comfortable with, and there's no portage, and there's that slight chance something could happen, you know, having it in a dry bag just as secure, your camera's safe for the rest of the trip, or ours is, and we can keep going. So it's something to think about. In Canada, it's MEC's where I've sourced this, Mountain Equipment Co-op, and no affiliation with them, but there's REI would probably have a very similar product. We can put a link in their show notes just so people can see what this looks like, or I can take a couple pictures of it or something so that there's some familiar familiarity with what we're talking about for a dry bag and how it works on these interior trips. And it could even be good for a non-canoeing trip if you were going to go in Alaska and just go on the tundra for 10 days just to have that security too for hiking. It's It could be managed that way. It doesn't have to be on water, but definitely on water. It's advantageous in my mind to have. I use a lot of those bags. I have a bunch of different sizes and I keep them in my truck. I always bring like a one that's big enough that would fit, for instance, you guys using the 200 to 500 with a body on it. I have one that's about that size that would be perfect just to say, oh, I'm just going to throw this lens and this body in there. So if it's raining or you got to cross a river or you got to do something like that. And they fold up really tight and they're not a lot of weight. So it is kind of nice to have around. The side benefit out here to having a dry bag like that is in the summertime, July, August, there's hardly any moisture at all. So when you're, you know, you're taking an ATV into a location, they do seal up nice and tight. So it keeps the dust off your gear as well and out of your bag. That's why there's more than one of us hosting this podcast. <laughs> Nicely done. That makes a lot of sense, right? Some of us live in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you holding there, well, Michael? So my pro tip is, you know, since I'm the video person, I'm constantly thinking about audio. And nobody really thinks about audio. You think about audio when you start editing. You're like, oh, that would be nice if I could hear that bird or I could hear that whatever's going on. Yeah, hear that moose. Exactly. And if you rely on the microphone that comes on your camera, it's okay, but it's not great. So if you really want to capitalize on that audio, there's an interesting study, and I may have talked about this before, but... There was a study done probably 20 years ago where they took a little one-minute piece of video. They had really good audio, really bad video as one version. They had another version that was really pretty video with, you know, okay audio. And then they just had a, a viewing, a focus group, and they asked people to choose which one they liked. The one they liked was the one with the better audio. So it's very important to get good quality audio. And there's some things out there nowadays that... You can add to your camera. It doesn't add a lot of weight. And I'm holding a little Rode. It's called a Video Micro, I think is what they call it. It's a Rode, R-O-D-E, and we'll put a link in the show notes. But I'll oftentimes just throw this on the top of my DSLR and then plug it in. 
and it's recording the whole time. Now, if you're around a couple other photographers, it kind of doesn't work because all you hear is the other shutters clicking, right? So you're still not getting nature. But maybe that's your story is being with a couple other photographers and you want to hear those clicks. You want to hear what's going on. It's also great for doing a little uh, interviews in the field. So if you just want to talk to your buddy or whatever and say, hey, what's going on? Or what do we just see? Or if you're doing something for YouTube, this is a pretty awesome little thing. And it's not a lot of, like I said, a lot, not a lot of weight. Strap it on the front of your camera and you pretty much forget it's there. So it fits in the hot shoe and plugs in with a little uh, eighth inch plug into the side of your camera and it's super, super reliable. And this one, this particular one doesn't require batteries or anything. I have another one a little bit bigger and it takes a nine volt, but I pretty much go 100% of the time if I think I'm going to be shooting video with having this on. It's just, I, and I couldn't, I should have looked to see what the price was, but I think it's probably 150 bucks or less. Go ahead. Tell us about the full fur dead cat and why that's important on the microphone. So yeah, this one comes with a little furry cover with, it's got foam and then it's covered with, with like a, they call it a dead cat, but it's just, uh, what it does. It's not literally is a dead cat. You, that's just, it is what the industry no, calls some, it. I'm not being funny. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's a Hollywood right. term. But, uh, it's synthetic, like synthetic fur almost. And they're really amazing because you get out in the woods and if you're running a microphone without any cover on it, of course you're going to get wind noise. And you can have just a little breeze and it's going to cause a lot of wind noise. This guy breaks up that wind. So if you're out there and you're filming it, I've done it in a windstorm where if you didn't have one of these covers, you're just going to hear a horrible hiss on the microphone with that wind. You put this guy on, you actually hear the wind. You'll hear it blowing through the needles on the evergreens, or you'll hear it blowing through the trees, which that's a big part of your story too, right? So you want to capture the cleanest audio possible, and you definitely want to have one of these little covers. And this comes with the mic when you buy it. So it's the best little option that's affordable that you always have on your camera, and it's good to go. I highly recommend it. That's a compact setup. If you're doing any video at all. And it, you know, it seems like every podcast we talk about more video, mm -hmm. more people are shooting video, more people are just getting into it. And there's a lot, you know, obviously there's guys that just do audio. So it's super important. And you're just, this is baby steps, but it's the first good baby step to, to take into account. We've had conversations with people who are super successful on YouTube and have emphasized on their shows how important audio is. I mean, we feel the same thing, but it really is one of the things that you have to focus on very intently to do a good production. And Right, and you know, there's so much that you can do. So if you're shooting with a bunch of photographers, you're not, you're not gonna get anything but other clicks, right? But the thing is, is what you could do is when the shoot's over, Ask everybody to just sit tight for one minute and get what we call NAT, N-A-T, NAT sound. And if you have that natural sound that you can put in to dub over some of those clicks or something, that really enhances your production. Or any little video. If you're just doing a video for YouTube, it really helps a ton to have that on. So don't shy away from trying to get good audio. And this is a really, like I say, a really small, inexpensive step to get to at least start down that road of getting really good quality sound. One of the things that we did when we were out uh, photographing the sharp-tailed grouse, you've got to be there before daylight anyway and be set. So there's 
what an hour where you're not going to be able to shoot. And so we just set that mic, set the road, set the mic up and, uh, just let it run in the pre-dawn hours and capture our audio then. And then when the shutter starts clicking, well, we already have an hour's worth of audio in the bank. So, yeah, you can dub that all in later. And that's the beautiful thing about editing, you know, you know, post-production stuff. So I highly recommend spending that time. It just, it's just another thing to put on the list. I mean, starting out as a photographer, when you're just clicking a shutter and coming away with a slide 20 years ago, it was so easy compared to nowadays when you have to think of so many different things, but it's worth it. Can I share an audio clip from a recent trip? Let's okay, hear it. picture this. Picture a lake, a northern lake rimmed with rocky shore and giant white pine trees. The sun's going down. This is your video clip. You need audio to make the picture work. Let's see. And it's not going to play. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's hold on. It's starting. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Got it back. Okay. Could you hear that well enough through the microphone, or is it too quiet? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No. What was that? So I heard a loon mm. for sure, but is that all yeah, loon, no, or is that something else? And no, that was all loon. So it's springtime, and, and they're establishing their presence. It was like ice out, so very early spring, just pre-nesting, and they're just establishing their dominance and, and mating pair presence on that lake. So very vocal time of year. It's just magical at dark to hear that. So that was just recorded on my iPhone and was with that in mind and it, it obviously wouldn't be for high-end production but for something like youtube for a vlog it'd be great to add on or instagram that'd be awesome yep. i end up all the time with video that's awesome but then i've constantly got other shutter clicks from somebody that's shooting next to me or you're happen to be next to a road or you you know you just get all these sounds that aren't natural and every time i go to put a video clip on instagram it's it's like, well, do you really want to hear a car driving by or do you really want to hear a shutter being clicked? So I'm oftentimes dubbing video or audio in and having that kind of stuff even from your phone is really, really good. I've done that with elk bugling, wolves howling, everything. I've got one more. I got one more. Okay, it's very similar, it. very similar to loon sounding, but a very different creature. You kind of just gave it away. Thanks. But this. best sound in the mountains right there could you hear that all right did it transfer yeah. through oh yeah i yeah. again was just with my iphone with the bull that was probably 80 yards away yeah no it sounded really good i mean it's that is your last resort sure you know everybody's got a smartphone right. and don't be afraid to pull that out and get some stuff especially before like ron said before daylight or after dark when you can't be shooting if you're with somebody, tell them to be quiet and get that. If you're just by yourself, make sure you take the time to do it. And it's just, so for those that don't know, and I'm sure most people do, on your smartphone, there's just that utilities app and then voice memos. And you hit that and hit record. So easy. Yep. And it's same for, you know, yep. I, I use it all the time. If I'm, if I'm writing an article or something's coming up and a thought comes to me, I dictate into that all the time. Just. Yep. It's a good way to go. And it's just Another something hack. more and more people are shooting video. You just got to think about it.
audio is very important and get the microphone but you know so tyler who was doing the the videos in a in our trip uh, for alaska last early last autumn had the dead cat cover and that was a very important because I, there was a lot of breeze and wind going on there. It yeah, it makes a big a difference. difference. So if your microphone doesn't come with that, make sure you pick one of those up to cover it for anything outdoors. All right. So do we have a question of the week or yes. are we skipping that? We week? have a question of the week. So the question of the week is from Jackie. And forgive me, Jackie, if I butcher your last name, but I believe it's Jackie Robido. And Jackie was asking about video, actually. May have already covered this question. What's the best way to post your video from DSLR or trail cam to Instagram or to social media from your PC laptop? So this is something that I've been kind of playing with a little bit once in a while uh, on Instagram. is just doing these short little video clips. And I just got a Premiere, Adobe Premiere. And so I'm kind of learning how to do the uh, post-production on Premiere. But I've been using it. We did a podcast on it quite a while ago. I can't remember what week or how you know how many months ago it was, but on iMovie. And so I've been just using iMovie to put these clips together. And it, you can do some semi-advanced editing on iMovie. And I've been kind of playing around with those settings as well, doing a little bit of speed ramping. So you'll have a, a clip that's recorded at 60 frames a second. And then you can s slow it down, go into slow motion, or you can speed one up. Had a grizzly bear that was just kind of sauntering through the sagebrush and sped it up through the sagebrush and then slowed it down as he went across the, a sagebrush to, to scent mark on that sagebrush as he dropped back down into the, the riverbed. So you can you can kind of play around with some of these settings and do some advanced type of editing, post-processing, but it's very simple. You can do it either on a PC or if you once you get the clips to your phone, you can do the editing right from your phone and pretty much have every feature that I just described as well as, you know, multiple others. When you're when you're uploading it, and I know Mike is going to probably touch on this a little bit as well, but be at uh, 720. I've tried it at 1080, but it gets compressed anyway. So be at 720 when you're going to upload it to social media. And one issue that I have found is I have a business page on Facebook as well as, and I have it connected to my Instagram account. So when I post something on Instagram, I always do it that way. I don't do it the other way. When I post something on Instagram, you have the option of having it go directly to Facebook. The issue that I've had with video, I've never had any issue with stills at all, but with video, Facebook compresses video pretty severely. And when it transitioned over, it was unrecognizable. So I went over, checked it to, to make sure that it looked the same and you couldn't even recognize what was on the screen. So I, I would recommend strongly if you're going to post something on Facebook, just go direct to Facebook and make sure you post it at 720, not not 1080, and definitely don't try to post it on, at 4K. Mike? Can I throw something in? Yeah, I yeah. think you hit it all. I Go ahead, Mark. 
because Mike's going to hit all the pro stuff. There's just a little add-on that I'd like to recommend for our listeners to consider when posting a video. It's something we do with our still photos is putting the watermark on. And oh. however you want your watermark to look, you can create yourself. And, and the level of opacity and the size and the positioning is obviously all up to you. But there's an iWatermark app that I use, and again, no affiliation, but I really like the functionality of it. But there are two versions of it, and we might have touched on it again once before on a podcast, but it's worth mentioning again. There's a blue version that you can find on the App Store and a yellow version. The yellow version will handle video and stills for watermarking. So you can go in, import your video, create your watermark on however you want to look, whatever font style, whatever size, whatever opacity level, and then position it on the video and then export it back to your photo album on your smartphone or your video album for uploading to social media. So that if you do want to have a watermark, and trust me, if you've got a great video, I would recommend putting a watermark on it because people will repost it. And at least that way, if they don't put a link back to your home page, there'll be uh, a mention there. Your credit will be there. People will still be able to find you if they want to find out what more of your work is like or ask you questions about the video itself. So iWatermark, now there's a fee to it. If I remember correctly, it was 5 or $6 for the app. And $5 US for that for that version. Yep. And it's been very useful as for, for my applications for social media. So something to consider because it's literally only a minute or two. And you can save your watermark. And that's what I do. I create one or two or three templates and save them. And you just select the one that works best for that video and that background. And so it's very user-friendly. And within a minute, you've got it watermarked and, and ready to upload if you so elect to do so the only thing i'm going to add is as far as getting traction or, or having people interact with your video you have the option especially using iMovie you can have it fade in from black fade out to black for effect that's nice but if you when you post it you also have the option to select which frame you want to be the thumbnail make sure and that's in instagram you'll have a little tab thumbnail make sure it's on an image it's not on the black screen because nobody will interact with the black screen at all so if you want people to see your video make sure that whatever your subject is is saved as your thumbnail when you post it so on instagram it's one minute maximum video posting for your regular yep. posts on instagram and that's fine. So you know you're limited to that. So if you're running a blog, and we've done this, Tyler did the excerpts from our vlogs so that we could put them on Instagram. So we put a one-minute version teaser on Instagram and then the longer one on YouTube. Go there and watch them on YouTube. But that being said, something I've learned or experienced as far as traction on Instagram, you have the number of views of your video. If it's a full minute, it won't get the same number of views as if it's 20 seconds. So if you can have just as much impact with your video with 20 seconds and put that up, it'll get viewed. But because it's only 20 seconds long, I find people will watch it again and it'll go through and it'll cycle through and your account will just skyrocket compared to a full one minute one. So something to think about if you if it's just as impactful of a, of a video at 20 seconds, then the favorite will be a little bit shorter. It will show a higher view count and help your uh, traction on Instagram. Nice. While you guys were talking, I just pulled up the re the guidelines for Instagram. So it says the minimum resolution is 600 by 600. So if you're doing a square, that's the minimum. 
the maximum is 1080 by 1080. So you could put up a 1080 video. And then the max file size is four gigabytes. So I can't imagine you would have something that's four gigabytes unless you're pulling it straight out of a camera or something. Um, The recommended formats are MP4 and a .mov. Video length, like you just said, Mark, is 60 seconds. And the max frame rate is 30 frames per second. So if you're going to put up something, you want to edit it in a 30 FPS timeline, and then that'll export as that. But you can still transfer slow-mo into that so it shows up as slow-mo. So just take all that into consideration. And everything you guys said is spot on. The thing you got to do is everybody has a little different formula for creating these videos. And what you need to do is just trial and error. You know, maybe 720 is your sweet spot. Maybe... Uh, something even a little different is a better spot for you and for some reason different technology works different so you might want to play around a little bit figure out which one works the best and then go with that so there's not much voodoo science to it it's just trial and error and just keep doing it until you find something that represents what you want just keep putting them up until you find that magic little formula that makes it look the best the easiest thing to do is just go to the web and just type in what what is the best size for YouTube, what is the best size for Instagram, what is the best size for Facebook, and they'll be that's like a good good starting point. Usually, I've found, especially if it changes over time. But I am skeptical about full HD because I have put up videos that we've done on our trips on Instagram, and they always seem compressed compared to what HD should look like. So the trick there is. You know, and this isn't going to work for your average person, but if you are, a, if you have access to an editing program or there's another program that Adobe makes called Media Encoder, and Media Encoder will compress much more effectively than if you just throw it up on Facebook and let Facebook compress it. So you can take a really quality video that is really big in size, compress it in Media Encoder or compress it in, there was another program that Apple had called Compressor. And there's probably a bunch more that I just don't even know about. Try compressing in those pieces of software. Again, it's just a trial and error thing. So you can keep that same quality, but just have a smaller file size. And that's less for those guys to compress. And then your video is going to look better. You know, all these news outlets and all these people that put up video all the time, it really looks good, right? But they have one person that that's all they do is they are in charge of compressing video adjusting it maximizing because everybody wants to put up the best thing that they can possibly put up so it's just a matter of trial and error and and playing around and i'd say the easiest way to put it on one of her questions was is how does what's the best way to get it there i think it's from your phone to that application that seems to be the easiest you can do it from your computer too but the phone is just so user-friendly I think when you're trying to upload that stuff so if you can do the edits on your computer and then get it to your phone now she said PC Mm -hmm. I'm in the Mac world and we just use airdrop to go between the two pieces of equipment I'm sure there's something I'm not that familiar with PC but there's got to be some way to get your file from well a lot of those guys you can use a a thumb drive I think so it's a, it's a bunch of steps, but if you're doing a good video, it's going to get watched and people are going to like it. So it's probably worth the time to get it right. So s- smartphones don't have a typical USB port, but 
the, the new SSD that you showed a few weeks ago, that automatic backup, um, there are different brands out there. SanDisk was one that you showed that plugs in and automatically backs up your photo album now from your smartphone, so you have that user-friendly. But that would also, um, it has a USB transfer. transfer it if you're on PC. You think you could plug that into the PC because I think the other end of it had a USB. Yeah, it's USB 3 it. on one end and then um, micro on the other. Okay, so yep. you yep. load it from the PC onto that. And they're, you know, relatively inexpensive. Uh, 64 gig was was around 50 or $60 Canadian. And I think the 256 I was pricing out was uh, 110 Canadian. So even less uh, U.S., obviously. But here's the deal. And I think I talked about mm -hmm. this before. If you're an Amazon Prime member, mm -hmm. you get unlimited stills and you get five gigabytes worth of video as part of that membership. And it's so seamless. It is, I ended up buying, I think I have a hundred gigs of space for video now. So I ended up buying that. It was 60 bucks for a year. So you got to kind of weigh your options. I mean, you can buy that little thing, that little device, right. but you accomplish the same thing on Amazon photos. Mm -hmm. So that might be the easiest way to do it on PC is just if, but see, that requires an Amazon Prime membership. Maybe that's not, another you know, not everybody has that, but that's another option. And um, just to give you all an uh, update on that, I'm up to 106,000 images <laughs> on Amazon Prime. It's two terabytes. Wow. And I just, you know, after we finished this whole drive from up to Alaska, I mean, we had tons of stuff that we shot on our phone. And that's when I had to up it because between Missy's phone and my phone, we had to add, I maxed out the 10 gigs or whatever I had. So I had to go to a hundred gigs and for 60 bucks. Now we should be good to go for about a year. Hmm. So you figure I'm going to pay 60 bucks a year for that, but <laughs> that's a pretty sweet way to transfer your stuff around. Yeah. Good. I love it. Now I was looking for a picture for Instagram today to put up and I just don't have all, everything on my phone and I'm in Alaska. So most of my files are in Colorado and I thought, well, I'll just go to Instagram or I'll just go to Amazon prime and find an image and it worked great. There you go. If you don't want the hardware, that's an option. The cloud. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks Jackie. That yeah, was a good us one. On all those rabbit trails. That was a good question. And I look forward to seeing some of the trail cam videos. So we're going to follow along with Ron on his adventure to this incredible destination in his home state of Wyoming, somewhere I've never been. Michael and Missy had just passed through. Ron was there recently to Yellowstone National Park and his time spent there. Doing video, more and more video Doing with grizzly bears. More, more video than anything, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a last-minute trip, actually, and I knew that Mike and Missy were going to be going through there, so I kind of wanted to go see what was going on, and to be quite honest, it was a week that I just needed to escape a little bit. So I just decided that that, that was going to be the, the weekend trip. It was a long weekend here, holiday weekend. So I decided to head to Yellowstone, and yes, Mark just made the face that I was making 
much of the time as well because the holiday weekend, especially the first major holiday weekend in Yellowstone, is always busy. But there are places that you can get away from the crowds and get away from all the major features, and that's that's what I try to do. I try to stay away from the big crowds as much as possible. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to do was I, I wanted to meet some people. So we've got several people now that interact with the podcast, interact with us on social media, and several of them were going to be in yellow. And so I thought that would be a good opportunity to go up and, and meet some people face-to-face and, and visit and hopefully have some good shoots. Right out of the gate, it, it was going to be a pretty moody weekend. The weather was kind of hit and miss, a lot of rain little bit of snow and sleet um, on the way down even. And I got into the Wind River Canyon, which is Mike and Missy went through, is right before Thermopolis. So my great-grandparents homesteaded in the middle of that canyon. And it has been kind of notorious the last few years for any time there's a rainstorm, the rocks are coming down. And sure enough, there was a couple rocks down in the canyon. They were working on getting those out of the way and so there were there were some delays. So I didn't even make it to Thermopolis. My plan was to get to Cody and stay the night, and then it's just a, a short skip into the park, and you're driving through the North Fork Canyon to the east entrance. And so there's a good possibility of running into to bears, potentially wolves. But sheep, uh, bighorn sheep with lambs is what I was kind of looking for in there. So I waited a little bit. The plan was get to Cody wait a little bit later, get up, and hopefully find some sheep on my way into the park. And by the time I got to Thermopolis, I had to crash at my sister's house, and and uh, which made for an early morning the next day. So I was up about quarter to four and took off driving toward Cody. And right away, there were elk everywhere. And this is well, – Mike and Missy made this drive, so they kind of know what I'm talking about. It's kind of wide-open plains sagebrush flats and even as a kid growing up there and and when I worked for the game and fish up there I don't remember ever seeing as many elk out in the flats as what there were on on this morning drive I saw one group of about 17 bulls that were right on the highway uh, still in velvet and that was before daylight and then I saw right before Cody about 10 miles before I got to Cody Saw my first elk calf of the year, but again, out in the middle of the sagebrush. And unfortunately, the backdrop is the Cody City landfill. So with the winds up there, there's a lot of trash that's blowing around. So it is not a very appealing backdrop for an image. They try to get that stuff covered up as fast as they can, but with uh, Cody has is notorious for... Now, there's a lot of wind in Wyoming, but Cody has two canyons that kind of converge, and it acts like a little bit of a funnel. So the winds many, many times are over 70 miles an hour there. And so there's just a lot of trash. But it was neat to see the the calves out, you know, playing around, starting to kind of get playful already on wobbly legs even um, that early in the morning. Made my way into the canyon. Wildlife was pretty scarce going in. I did see some sheep, but they were way up high, so I didn't take the time to stop and try to photograph them. It may have been, probably was the same bear. Went through the east entrance and over Sylvan Pass, 
and pretty much right away saw my first bear jam. And sure enough, this it was an adolescent sow. The locals up there call her Snow. They have them all named. It's pretty crazy. I'm not a animal namer, so to speak, but that's the bear that everybody's talking about. She is very well behaved bear and very photogenic, uh, pretty light colored, and she was right next to the road. So got some good images of her there. The crowd kind of dispersed, and one of the guys that I I follow, give him a shout out. I've followed for a long time. He's been around forever. Is a guy that Jason and Harlan both mentioned last week on the podcast. Uh, Bill Allard is his name. Bill's been photographing forever. He's been around a long time, and he is just a ball of fire. But I ran into Bill right away, and that was the first time we'd ever met face-to-face. We had chatted a bunch online about images and about locations. Uh, He's friends with a friend of mine who's a game warden that you guys have talked to, Andy Russo, over in Rock Springs. And so Bill gives Andy a lot of information. Andy gives Bill a lot of information. And so there's some good trade-offs that go back and forth between people that he knows respect wildlife in the same way that he does and he's out constantly like i said bill was just a riot i got a little video clip if i can get his permission we'll throw it up on youtube because it just kind of tells the story of who he is as a person but bill and i just kind of sat around and were visiting a little bit and this sow had gone down behind a bluff so the whole crowd packed up the 5600 millimeters lenses on tripods that were stacked up in that area and dispersed and we kind of sat and we had one shot in mind there was this rocky point that came out over yellowstone lake and the wind had come up pretty strong all the ice was off in the big open body of the lake and the wind had come up and pushed all the ice from the south end that's always in the shade pushed it across to where we were so you got all this kind of ice little almost icebergy type spots it was looking like or as much as it ever looks like in Yellowstone Lake and it kind of came in all behind this one point and we had the light coming in over our shoulders and so we just sat and visited and waited and sure enough the south came out on this rocky point and gave us some pretty good images and there were you know the the two of us that that actually got it everybody else was gone so that was that was great. You don't have that opportunity very often in Yellowstone, especially on a weekend like that. So that was the first little interaction that we had. Her mom, uh, this sow had been kicked off last year. Her mom was still in the area, and there had been a boar chasing her. So we did spend a little bit of time looking for them, but I didn't. I never had any luck. I know Bill did later on in the weekend. Ended up getting them again, but I did never find that boar and sow. So that was the first interaction, and I, it was right by the lake, Mike. I don't know, is that where you guys ran into the first bear? Yeah, it's, it sounds exactly where we ran into her, the exact same spot. Yeah. She must just frequent yeah, that area within sounded, a I mean, they had the bear jam patrol <laughs> go driving the road back and forth in that area, so I'm, I, I'm guessing you're right. She's just kind of working a big circle in there. And there's plenty of feed and oh, yeah. all that burned up area. So there's plenty of grass everywhere. And Absolutely. 
So when you when you roll into that park like that, I mean, you're familiar with the park, so you're like, okay, so we've got this, you know, we all do these different areas that we know, you know, okay, it's this time of day that I'm going to go here because this is probably a good place to spend the next two or three or four hours. After you do that, where where do you go? Because that park is so big. Yeah, it's pretty vast. I So I had a couple different goals on this trip. Um, one was to find the strutting blue grouse or dusky grouse and get some video of us strutting dusky the other of course you know bears are always on the plate and then the other that i really want to get video of that i knew was kind of a sure thing was the harlequin ducks and uh from there you know i went back and forth a few times trying to find the uh mature sow with that because the boar and bill's been around a lot of bears especially in that country and he said, you know, it's the biggest boar he's ever seen in there before. So I really wanted to have an opportunity to maybe photograph that boar, get some video of that, you know, mating interaction, like you guys were fortunate enough to do up up north. So I went back up, I checked my kind of my go-to dusky grouse area. They make a couple different noises. And most of the time when they're when they're making these doing this kind of little drum they're sitting still and that's what i found i mean he they flare out with that bellow on the side of their neck but that's all you're going to get and so i didn't spend much time with him he obviously was not interested there was a female a hen real close to him but he never did strut and it was pretty obvious that he was fairly content not to so i left that you think you were late yeah you think if you'd have been there two weeks earlier it'd been yep, better? it's definitely kind of on the tail end and i of thumb is the reason I would go Yellowstone between Memorial Weekend and Labor Day is for the bison rut, which is in August. Otherwise, I try to stay as far away from that place as I can during the summer because it is a nightmare. And there was there was actually a fatality while I was there, and several car accidents. It, it was it was a zoo. Well, when we were there too, when you come off the pass and you cross by the lake, there there was road construction. Yeah. And it was serious, right? I mean, it was a long yeah, ways. A pretty good there. stretch. They, they were up. working on, you know, they're going through a bunch of wetlands there next to the lake, and they're doing all the mitigation, and it's probably a project that's going to last all summer, I would assume. Yeah. You know, for that, I like to just kind of hang out where I find the action. So I stayed in that location for quite a while, went down. Not that kind of action, Ray Croft. <laughs> <laughs> I went down. He was doing a little shadow boxing. I was dancing. I was dancing. Yeah, it was some dancing action. Yeah. I went down and spent some time with the Harlequins, and that's when I started to – I photographed them before, but I wanted to try to get some video down there. What Mike, I think, was going to discuss during his pro tip or one of the options he had was a fluid head, and I have one, and I did not bring it because I have it all set up on my Canon camcorder. The Harlequins are, you know, you'll get them sleeping and then they'll get up and they'll kind of do the preening on top of the rocks. But once they hit the water, that's where the magic happens because they, they'll get down and fish in these rapids and they're pretty predictable. So once they hit the rapids, they're, they're usually going to surface in the same spot and then they'll circle and then they'll come back through the rapid again. And that's kind of their feeding behavior. So they get fairly predictable, and so I'd, I 
wanted to be able to pan with them, but with the setup that I had, there was no panning going to happen. So I got a lot of the preening behavior, got them flying off the rock into the water, and then got a few shots of them, you know, as, as they're kind of coming up and surfacing. And the only reason that you're able to do that without that panning head is to just focus on one spot, turn your autofocus off completely. So you're, you maintain that focus. And then just as they come back through, you kind of catch them and you want to increase your depth of field also. Because, you know, if you have, if you're trying to video at five, six, obviously your focus plane is very small. So they're going to come into it and be gone and they move so fast that they're going to be through that focal plane very quickly. So one of the, you know, for two reasons, increase that depth of field. I'm shooting that or videoing at like F-16. And the other reason is it cuts the light. So you increase your depth of field and you're cutting that ambient light. And in those rapids, that white water, it's pretty easy to lose every bit of highlight that you have. Mr. Raycroft, you had your hand up. I just like in the schoolroom, trying to be polite in the podcast, let them know that I have a question. <laughs> I have a question. So a lot of people nowadays have DSLRs that have the capability to collect incredible video footage. But as Michael's pointed out on numerous occasions over the history of our podcast, you don't just hop over on the same settings. Can we do a quick rundown for those that may not be on, on top of it as to what settings to change? And it's it's so much so that I've heard people say it's it's sometimes better to have two cameras, one set for video and one for stills because it takes that time. Or maybe you can do a preset. But what are the differences as far as if you were switching? So obviously with stills, we're going to assume people know what they're doing. We're just going to talk about what's different if you're going to want to collect the best video footage you can for your DSLR. Where do you go on, on your settings? What do you change? I was, so Mike talks about that. What <laughs> You double the frame rate. But what's it called? Right. Half shutter or you, it's 180, 180 degree, degree shutter. There you go. So I was shooting yeah. at uh, 60 frames a second at 120, 125th is where I had the shutter set. And so I. And then you had to run it up to. to yeah. So I dropped my ISO because because I'm slowing the, the shutter rate down or shutter speed down. I had to drop my ISO. I think I was videoing at a hundred ISO. And then when I bumped, when I closed it down, went to F 16 to try to get the, those ducks coming up through the rapids. Um, then I bumped the ISO back up to compensate for that light, but it, it worked pretty well. And again, I didn't, did you like, that's what I was going to ask. Did you like what you got? Because all of that is all about the look. Mm -hmm. That is all you're after. If you're trying to create something that looks filmy, that is cinematic, that you want to put up on the screen that you could see in a movie or a nature documentary, that's why you're trying to achieve these numbers. You can shoot video at whatever you want. If you're happy with everything being in focus from the front of your lens to infinite, then it really doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. But if you're after an actual look, if you want to, if you want to isolate an animal, if you want to show, if you want that water to smooth out a little bit, yeah. obviously the shower, slower shutter speeds are better. So it's really, you know, I think I oftentimes I'm trying to shoot at five, six 
or eight because you kind of want that definition or you want that separation yep. between the animal and your background. But if you're in a manual focus mode, it's hard to, you know, or if you don't know where that animal is going to pop up, you can't let autofocus run because autofocus is going to search for something else. And then when that animal does pop up, it may not be right in that exact spot where your autofocus point is at. And then you miss the shot totally. So you're better off, like you said, to just pre-focus where you think the action is going to be turn off the autofocus and then just let it roll. Yeah. And that's the only time that I had that I had the lens closed down, you know, with that depth of field, bringing that depth of field up or getting it up to F 16, um, was when I was trying to film those rapids. And it was just for that reason only, I just wanted to increase my opportunity a little bit. Uh, the rest of the time I was shooting at, I, I think six, three F six, three, when they were on the rocks, and I got, you know, with the, with the pocket, I was able to get some footage of, you know, kind of how I got the shot, took some stills. I wanted the water to be blurred out in the stills completely. So I slowed the shutter speed down, dropped my ISO so that that would, that would happen. So you could see the motion going on around them while they were sleeping, but but it's a dance that whole thing is a dance i mean that's where you're talking about having that pull that polarizer you know you can have neutral density too and you can just play around all day long with okay well i'm going to throw in a three shot or a three stop neutral density filter and i'm going to cut the light and then i'm going to you know because a lot of these dslrs most of them only go to 100 iso i think there's a few that'll go down to 50 and it's a special setting that you can get to but you're just constantly playing. You just got to find your style. You just got to find your look and something that identifies what you're after. And if you're happy with it, that's what's important. So the settings are all over the place, but you, you can spend all day working on Harlequin duck shots with all the little tools. You can try different filters. You can try different settings and you just got to figure out what works for you. And then the situation where, you know, can you autofocus? Can you, you have to manual focus? Can you predict where it's going to happen? I mean, it's just a million little things that come up that you have to address and make sure they're, they're meeting your standard. What do you have? I have two questions. So for ISO, for somebody who doesn't understand any of this for our audience or some of those people that might be new at it, if they want to switch from still so we talk about what we're comfortable with for high iso capabilities of these new dslrs for stills and we, we all have different caps that we might use as high as we're going to go what would be your highest iso setting that you would use to get decent video what that's so we're talking like a sunrise setting or we're talking like a severe overcast where it's really dark and you're in a forest let's so let's say you're doing low low okay light. overcast so forest. i with, with video, and I'm using Canon yep. for a DSLR, I'm using the Canon 1DX, that I will run up to 32 and be very comfortable, 3200. Right. And then that's in a dimly lit situation. But I'm generally going to be like F4, F5, 6, and then you're playing with your focus because your focus is so shallow and critical, it's hard to predict. If it's in a bright setting, yeah, you always want to run it down to the, the bare minimum. Okay. Because unless you have neutral density with you, if you have neutral density, then you can, you can take that advantage and you can run your ISO up a little higher if you want to. But really, DSLRs, I mean, 
the red camera that I use, they say the sweet spot is 800 ISO, right? That's the native ISO on that camera. So if you go up from that or down from that, in my mind, that says, well, if native is this, that's what they made the camera for. That's what I should shoot it at. If I'm going lower, is that going to degrade the quality? I don't see it. Maybe somebody in Hollywood would see it or somebody that deals with footage all the time would see that, that degradation. I don't see it. So I'll play on the red all the way up to like 1600 from 100 to 1600. With the DSLR, I've always heard that 320 on the Canon is kind of like the sweet spot for the ISO on that Canon. I don't know what it is on Nikon. For bright light. For clean. For bright, bright light. light. And so yeah. would you say, I mean, those are the two scenarios as a photographer in natural light that my eye is tuned to. The rich early light or the overcast through the daylight. So in summary then, am I interpreting this accurately? For the overcast light, it's pretty well a similar ISO that you're comfortable using for stills. It's still okay for video. But but yep. in the bright light, in the morning or evening light, you're better to go as low as you can. And like the 320 for Canon, for instance, is the sweet spot. So don't shoot at 1200 ISO in the bright light. Lower it, but in the overcast light, treat the settings like you would for stills and that's okay yep now if you're set up to shoot video like i said and you have neutral density and you have those those tools that are required mm. then you're going to be able to stay at 320 but most people don't have the neutral density so i would take it all the way down to in bright light just go as low as that camera will go because okay. you always want to get that as low because it's that 180 degree shutter rule so if you're going to shoot at 60 frames per second, that means you need to be at a 125th shutter speed. Or if you're shooting at 30 frames per second, then you're at a 60th shutter speed, which to get to a 60th in bright light is almost impossible unless you're shooting at F16 or F22 or F32 or, you know, and then everything in your scene's in focus. Can you explain that 180 rule and those calculations? And if you give an example and what, because there wasn't like 180 between those, how does that work? It's not true 180, but it's like you basically just double your shutter okay. speed. Shutter All speed. Right. So double typical your, video. Double your frame rate with the shutter speed, right? I mean, yeah, okay. double your frame rate. So you take most cinematic stuff because of the old days and with old film cameras, it was shot at 24 frames a second. Right. So then your shutter speed would be at 48, 148th, right? So you're just doubling that, and that's that's achievable. If you go to 30, you double it. You go to a 60th, right? 30 frames a second. If you go to a 60th or 60 frames a second, you don't have a 120 on your camera. You have a 125. Mm -hmm. So it's just as about close. Okay. So on the red camera, I can select. I can just say, based on this setting, I want the camera to adjust that number for me and I just select 180 degree shutter. So no matter where I put the frames per second, it's automatically going to go to that form. It doubles it. Yeah. yeah. But on a DSLR, you just need to do it manually. You just need to dial it in. You never want the other thing that should, we should mention is you never, ever, ever want to shoot video in aperture priority. You want to be 100% full on manual. The thing is, is if you're changing, like Ron's saying, if he's shooting dark rocks and bright water, and if he's going to pan with the subject, your auto, the aperture priority is going to constantly adjust as you're panning. So for bright, dark, bright, and then 
when you look at that footage, it's going to go bright, dim, bright, dim. So you want to go to a manual setting in order to achieve a consistency throughout your footage if you're panning with it. So that's why understanding all this stuff is very important because you want to nail it for the right part of the scene that you're trying to capture. So probably for the brights, you're going to have to expose for the brights. If you're going from dark to bright, dark to bright, you just, I think the way you err is on the bright side. But then everything that's in the dark, the shadows, you're going to lose all the detail there. But, you know, there's no perfect scenario, right? You, in that situation, you basically just wait for better conditions. You wait for twilight or you wait for the clouds to roll in. I don't, you know, you just, it's, that's why wildlife is so, it's so fun and challenging, but it's difficult. And it's all about timing. You know, you can't just roll up to a situation and say, I got it. You know, or Hollywood or in a studio, you know, we have all these lights and we can make anything look like we want it to look at any time. But with wildlife, you're just totally at the mercy of nature. That's what I was just going to say. I could have I spent the entire weekend right there because the different behaviors that I was looking for. And then there's, they started to have a little or display a little bit of courtship behavior as well. And I had tried to move down to a different location because they, whenever the drake was chasing the hen, they moved down river just about 30 yards. And I tried to move down to where they were at. It was a, it was a different spot, and the hen wasn't having my presence at all. She was like, you know, one male in this area is more than enough for me right now, and she would head back up river. So that didn't work out, you know. But I did. I spent probably five or six hours during the middle of the day with them, and the the D850. I tried to look up what the native ISO was for the D850, but I. They just gave the full range, but it does go down to 64 uh, natively, 64 ISO. So you can, if it's really, really bright, you can cut that light quite a bit uh, just by dropping And if ISO. you're really serious about this, I think it's like what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with the lenses. If you're super serious about this, just like you would test a lens for sharp sharpness and you're doing it in your backyard, you could do that with ISO too, right? So you want to go out in your backyard and you want to try 64 and compare it to 100 or compare it to 320 or compare it to whatever. Mm -hmm. And then just put that, you know, try to make the conditions similar or consistent so that you're not comparing apples to oranges. You're comparing similar shots to similar shots. And then you could just, and again, it's all subjective. It's what you like. What, you know, if you go shoot for a, like if I'm going to go shoot for Animal Planet last year when I was doing that, they gave me their specifications and they say, this is what you're shooting at. So you know what you have to achieve. But if you're shooting for yourself, it's basically your own, whatever you think you like. Yeah. And it's I had never shot any 4K with that D850 because I was, when we were in Alaska, I was messing around with slow motion. And so that brings it all the way down to 720 automatically. So 4K, you're only 4K at 30th, and then you go into 2K at 60 frames a second. So I kind of thought that was kind of the sweet spot because at 60 frames a second, it would be easier to slow it back down in post. I could run it at at full speed, or I could slow it back down. Um, but I did do some 30 frames a second in 4K, and I will tell you the image quality is significant with the 850 you still have focus issues so it, in my opinion it's basically a manual focus 
camera um, for video. You can tap the screen and it'll autofocus, but when you tap the screen and you're shooting with a 200 to 500 or, or a 600 prime, you can touch it lightly. That lens is going all over the place. You get all kinds of shake. And I even had issues with, because I didn't have the fluid head, didn't have a video head. I even had issues with, I had one leg of the tripod in the water and I was clear over at the, at the bank. And so the water was not very fast where I was, but it was moving and just hitting that tripod leg that the camera shake that was introduced just by that little tiny bit of water was that, that footage was pretty much unusable, even though, you know, there's a couple tricks you can use in, in iMovie or Premiere to smooth that out. But there was some significant movement just because of that little bit of water. And that, that surprised me. I was, I was kind of surprised by that. Well, that's why the tripod that I use up here in Alaska is 22 pounds. Yeah. You know, that weight helps a ton. And if you are in the water, but if you're using big glass and you're magnifying an image, it doesn't matter. It's any little, you know, a fly can land on the lens and you see, you know, it's not that bad, but it is really bad. You've, it's something to be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. So important to have all the right stuff. And the fluid head is really important to have if you're trying to do really good quality stuff. And a lot of times you get caught without it. And if that's the case, then basically you just got to lock down a shot. And then hopefully the animal's going to move into the frame and out of the frame or stay within the frame and you're capturing a behavior that is really cool. You know, there's ways to work around it. You, it's just a lot more work and it's going to take you twice as long to, to tell a little story just because you're limited. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you, you probably heard on the podcast we did with Harlan and Jason. I mean, he started using the fluid head in the very beginning because that's just the way it works better if you have it. And you can... You know, everybody's so used to, if you're using a tripod, everybody's used to using a Wimberley. Mm-hmm. You know, the, whatever, what do they call those mounts? It's a special, because it's not just Wimberley, that's just the brand that I use, but I don't even know what you call those types of heads. It's a certain well, we uh, name. We've always had ball heads, but uh, Wimberley's different. It's that, it's that fluid, well, it's not, sorry, it's not fluid, but it's got this J shape that brings the camera down to the side. But I'm right. not, I don't know the exact terminology. I was always on a head. I like yeah. that personally better than the Wimberley, but I didn't play much with Wimberleys for stills. And they work great if you're using a 600, mm-hmm. you know, because you can pretty much let go. You know, with a ball head, you have to tighten it right. down if you're going to let go. Yes. With those those other style or that style of, of uh, a tripod head, and I, I'm just going to call it a Wimberley, you could pretty much let go and, mm-hmm. and Gimbal. be good to go. It's it, do they call it a gimbal? It's a gimbal head, yep. Oh, all right. And you can get by with that more so than with the ball right. head. Right. And then if you're going to shoot any video at all, you've got to have a tripod for the most part. Unless you're shooting a 24 or a 70 or something like that, you can handhold that pretty decently. And then you can use some of those tools to take the shake out if mm-hmm. the shake is really bad. One other thing that I wanted to mention, so you said, Ron, that the focus was kind of, iffy on that as far as autofocus and touching the yeah. screen and trying to that's where canon really excels they got the dual pixel technology and that camera is super fast and then that's the dslr so that's i think probably the 5d and the 1dx and but the c200 the c300 
those have that same technology in it and the focus is pretty amazing and it'll even lock on you can lock it on to an animal it's not quite as good as shooting a person because a person there's so much contrast between your background and and skin tones but if you're shooting a let's say a bear a brown bear and brown vegetation it still has a tough time you know unless you're super close and then it'll pick up the contrast that between the eyes or whatever but if I've tried bears a lot where you're trying to autofocus just by touching the button and it'll lose it if there's too much similar stuff in your scene. But it is way better than the Nikon as far as autofocus. Even the 850? I mean, I, I was playing with the yeah. 850 this winter and I found the touch screen on the back on Whitetails was pretty good. But it'll grab focus, but it won't. The the follow focus is where Canon okay. and, so, and Sony uh, both excel quite a bit over over Nikon and you read that in it pretty much every review um I think there's some models that are a little bit better the d5 is a little bit better than the 850 with video but again you pay for it and and then you sacrifice resolution so there's there's trade-offs with everything but it you know it, it is a good tool at 4k but you you get a cropped image which worked out fine because these are not very big ducks and they're out in the middle of the river, so I didn't mind having that crop, you know, with the with the 4K at all. But there's a significant amount of detail gained when you go switch to 4K. Now, the problem with 4K and focus and all that is it is more detail. And if you look at your footage on a true 4K monitor, it's just like you, you, if you guys sit there and watch the TV news and you watch it when it was standard definition and you watch high definition, you can see the amount of makeup that the, these people are right. wearing, right? That's just going to HD. Now you go to 4K and the detail is just crazy good. So if your focus is off just a little bit, where you used to be able to get away with that years ago, you better nail it mm -hmm. or you better cheat like we were talking about earlier. You better run your, your F8, F11, even F16 sometimes because if you're using a big lens, you'll still get the benefit of the separation. And then you're giving yourself a little bit of leeway. So you have, instead of a foot of depth of field, you might have three feet or you might have whatever, whatever your setting is at, you're just going to get a little bit of relief so that you can cheat a little bit. I know a lot of these guys that are doing the wildlife documentaries, Doug, for example, shoots a lot at F11 just because he can you can fudge it just a little bit. And when you're looking at 4K, it better be on or you're, you're busted. And then it's unusable. As far as sharpness in focus. As far as sharpness goes. And who wants to watch blurry footage? So as this stuff gets bigger and bigger, you know, that one camera I have shoots 8K. I've never looked at 8K. I don't even know. I don't have a monitor capable of showing 8K. But it's just going to get worse and worse and worse as we go. So the focus is going to have to get more better, you know, more critical focus when you're out shooting with every increase of this technology. Something to help people with patience along with this too is remembering that you only need these snippets to typically be a few seconds long. So yeah, exactly. If right. you do film something for two minutes and a lot of it is in and out of focus, if you've got that 10 seconds of focus and it's a good situation, then high five. Yep. Yeah, you just, you know, it's just pixels. It's just data. So yeah, if you're wasting... If you got 10 good megabytes out of a one gigabyte clip, that's fine. That, you know, you've got something to work with. 
Well, so that was a good lesson. That was yeah, a good, it was. Uh, little it was conversation good practice. And, and trying to capture those. It mm-hmm. is. It's good practice. And sometimes it's those kind of animals that's more fun to practice with than, than going out and, you know, trying to do elk or bighorn sheep or whatever. Because mm-hmm. you know that they're going to be in that one area and it's just easier to work with them. I forgot to mention one of the things that happened on my way from the one bear over to where the harlequins were there was a bear on a bison carcass across the river. Spent some time with, with that bear, got a little bit of video, and then he just, I mean, by a little bit, I mean like three or four minutes, and then he crawled up on the bank and sacked out. And it was a typical bear nap. I mean, he would sleep for about two, three, four minutes, and then complete change of position. He had his head draped over this cut bank, and Pretty soon you look back and now his feet are hanging over the cut bank and his head's up on the bank. So got a couple pictures of him while he was switching positions. And then I went to the ducks knowing that I would come back and check on him. And when I came back, it, it was, it was a little bit of a walk and he was across the, the Yellowstone river. So he, you know, safe distance. And, uh, I get clear back in the woods to where I wanted to be when this bear woke up and they're sitting in the woods on this log with a D850 and 200 to 500 is my cousin who uh, does a lot of photography up in that area. He's He lives in Cody. So he's sitting there. So we, we visited, spent a lot of time together. While we're waiting for this bear, there was some uh, yellow rumped warblers that were kind of coming in to check us out. So they'd land and we got some, you know, they're like a, what, three inch bird, four inch bird at the most. And we were getting them full frame. They were coming right into us. So that was kind of neat. But then the bear woke up and he was a pretty good sized boar for that country. Got some stills of him and then switched back to video. This bison carcass was pretty much done. He had turned completely inside out, you know, the hide. And in fact, I thought it was an elk. Everybody there thought it was an elk just because of the size of the hooves that we could see because it was the only distinguishing feature you could see. And then all of a sudden he pulled the head up out of the water and kind of planted it horns down, nose up in the ground and chewed on it a little bit more. And then he started to walk off. And so I was I was getting clips of him as he would walk through the frame and then, like I said, he was sent marking, and he was a little bit different. He'd go over a over a sagebrush, so the sagebrush would come completely between his legs, and he'd kind of pause on top of it, and and then he'd shimmy off. And I could see, you know, he was going to go down the bank, so I kind of cut through the trees, and then I realized he was going to go way far down the bank, so I wanted to get ahead of him. So I went back and got back in my vehicle, and I looked out in the river, and here comes this big boar's head floating through the Yellowstone River, and he was swimming right at me. So I parked, got in a location where I thought he was going to come out, and sure enough, um, this boar had, I don't know if it was the same boar that, that they were seeing with that sow or if he had just run into that guy, but half his nose was torn completely off, um, the, the front of his nose, and it was just hanging there. When you... Uh, took images of him shaking the water off that the poor guy's nose was just flapping side to side like an ear he had been in 
a heck of a scrape. We're going to morph this into our Halloween special, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was beat up. So you got was that stills or video? That was, no, when he came out on the on the on the bank, I was just taking stills because it was it was happening fast, and I had to be able to move. So I didn't. I had um, I actually had two different setups. So I had the six hundred on a D five hundred at that time, and then because of the extra reach, so I thought I could re- be able to reach because he was a long ways across the river. And then I had the 200 to 500 on my D850. And so when I got out, when I parked and got back out, when I realized where he was coming to, I just had the 200 to 500 and the the D850. And so I had it all set up for stills. So that's what I ended up getting of him. I put one up on Instagram, but there's a couple more. And you can see that gnarly wound. You've posted the video of the bear along the river. Or was it just a still? But I thought I saw a video. Didn't you? Post no, no. I video. I videoed him while he was walking down the river, yeah, but as he left put, the bison carcass. Yeah. Did you put it up on social I did. media? Yep. On Instagram. On Instagram. As a post or a story? As a post. Good. So yep. then our audience can go. Yeah. So you can go to my Instagram and look up that bear video. All right. And then this, there's one still of when he first came out of the water too. He's got all kinds of pine needles and everything all over him so he still hadn't shaken anything off yet maybe uh put it up on on wild and exposed instagram too if you don't yeah, mind i could do that awesome that way people can see what you're talking about yeah and then uh he he went he crossed the road but you know we were on the wrong side of the light at that time and he was a scent marking machine once he got across there he was kind of stomping and he he rolled in the snow, and surprisingly enough, that is to dry them off. When they get out, they'll shake off the water, and then they roll in the snow to to get the water off of them, dries dries them out a little bit. And he did that a couple times, but every time he would scent mark, Yellowstone doesn't have very many power lines running through it, but every time he scent marked, it was on a power pole. And then he would walk down the power line, because it's a nice clear path, get to the next pole, stand up, scent mark again on the power pole, and then off he'd go. So it was a little bit frustrating because, yeah, you got all those man-made elements, and I didn't really want that. And he had plenty of trees to choose from, but he just liked the poles. It's just something about those poles. I don't know what it, yeah. Oh, straight and smooth, right? There are no little knots or branches yeah, that are going to exactly, poke and scratch. It's just s- smooth sailing. But he kind of worked his way back up into the timber, and that was that was the last I saw him. Like I said, I was at the Harlequins for several hours that day, and I had checked him before, so he pretty much slept clear through the middle of the day. And I've seen him, you know, lay down and take an hour nap, forty-five minute nap, or like this guy, he was in the same spot, just kept changing positions, and he was all over the place. He did keep looking up, and that's kind of why I thought that maybe that sow was around and why I kind of stuck with him for a while. He kept looking up in the same spot, but nothing ever. I glassed that area for a long time, and nothing ever materialized, so I don't know what he was looking at or if he was just 
that was downwind, so he was just checking it because he couldn't smell anything. So. Well, it's awesome to watch springtime oh, yeah. bear behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely, in a setting like that, beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm stuck on the Harlequins. I think that was great. I think anybody who wants to learn their equipment better, use DSLRs for video. I mean, we're there, right? So, and to have a setting like that that's somewhat static but simultaneously challenging. With light and variables and movement in the water and depth of field. I mean, we've talked about that on other podcasts. Do stuff close to home. Do something where it's a set condition that you can learn about your equipment and its capabilities and improve on your technique. And that sounds like the perfect situation. Several hours yeah, was, with ducks, various settings, yeah. uh, static positioning to movement to depth of field issues. All of that, and then fine tuning, and just realizing the simple, simple things like a little bit of movement on your tripod, like the relevance of that. So, yep. That's and then great. combining all that, bring with a sandwich, trying to catch the behavior. <laughs> right. There's that. Well, that's yeah. that's the winner, right? Is to get yep. the behavior, whether it's stills or video. That's the whole other element of successful wildlife and nature photography is understanding the ele- the animal or bird well enough to get that image that relays behavior not just something static yeah. so that's yeah for sure what were you gonna say mike i just said you better bring a sandwich <laughs> yeah i had a i had a power bar in my backpack that i think has been there since we were in central alaska last fall it did, did the it? trick yes it's gone it is oh. no longer <laughs> <laughs> no i think you're exactly right mark you just gotta try that you these guys that are out doing the our planet and planet Earth, that's why it takes months worth of time to get cool stuff. Is it just mm-hmm. there's all these elements you got to figure out what works. You got to learn the behavior. You got to learn the places to shoot. You got to have the right equipment. It's just as an endeavor. I mean, the, their jobs are pretty safe. Yeah, because it's not something that you're going to pick up and run out and do. No, but there's never been a better time. No, no cost exactly. to it. You Well, okay, I'll stop there. There's a cost. You have to have a, a camera body that's good enough to do it, the lens set up, the fluid head. and <laughs> But once you have your gear that does both stills and video, which most of the newer bodies in the last few years do handle well, then experiment. You've got memory cards, right? It's not like right. that was the yeah. big thing. You know, it, the cost of rolling film through a video camera before digital anyway now people can train and and it's that's a fun process we're all passionate about these animals about being out there first and foremost just a reason to be out in wilderness and then you're with these animals or birds and you can video to your heart's content and like you said michael experiment with settings to what best suits you if it's about social media or youtube no stress you know it doesn't have to be cinematic but you know if you want to get to that level then continue, you know, one step at a time, train, practice. It's no different than anything else in life. You know, if you want to be an athlete in any given area, you have to train and practice. Get the gear and train and practice. Have fun with it. And it'll just continue to evolve, right? Yep. Yep. Tell you that the limiting factor that I'm glad I saw uh, became battery. Because when you're shooting video, you're in live view the whole time. So it chews up battery pretty quick. And I know, you know, Michael talks about that all the time with the red and Nikon's got pretty good battery life. I, that's the one thing that I would say that 
well, one of the things that they've got over Canon is those batteries last forever. You can shoot a whole weekend on one set or one charge. Uh, but when you're shooting video, it's a different story. It, it chews them up pretty fast. And so I had to think about, I have a couple more days. The only way I have to charge videos, I'm sleeping in the car. I've got my camp set up in the car. So the only way I have to charge is a little power inverter um, while I'm driving down the road. So I was limited that way. And I had to make sure I had batteries on that thing all the time so that I, you know, I kept one that was fully charged the whole time while I was traveling. And that was, you know, when I left that situation, I went up, was planning on going up through the Hayden Valley and I was going to go over toward the Lamar Valley because there's, there's just a lot of wildlife up there, good opportunities. And that's when the big car accident had everything shut down. And so my detour was going all the way back down around by Old Faithful. And so this is like a three-hour detour. And I ended up, there was two kids. They were young, younger kids. And uh, they were waving on the side of the road, waving their arms. They were on bicycles. And it was about 6 o'clock at night. So my thought was there was probably a bear there. They're on bikes. They don't want to be there. So I stopped to see what was going on. And the girl was hurt. They were from Italy. And they had rented bicycles in West Yellowstone. And they were about 15 miles from there. And it was going to be way past dark by the time they got back. The traffic was so bad, there was no way that they should have been on those bikes anyway out where they were at. So we took the bikes apart, threw them in, and gave them a ride back to West Yellowstone. And I had gone so far out of the way anyway, I knew my opportunities were going to be pretty much shot for the rest of the night. So dropped them off, and then I headed back up to Gardner, which is where I was staying or camping. And I was actually going to just pull into uh, – Bill's campsite he told me just pull into the campsite and park there because everything was full so this whole trip there was kind of these little comedy of errors kind of things and that's where we're going to start the new so we're going to start the new uh <laughs> you're going to do this <laughs> it's a new segment. new segment what did Ron screw up and so <laughs> we get there first of all they had double rented the camp space so Bill, his, Bill is in his camp spot. Yeah, Bill's camp spot that he paid for, had the ticket for and everything. And these other people were parked in there. Well, Bill is in talking to the camp host, and they said, just just stay there. And so he gave us permission to stay in there. The people that were in second weren't real happy about it, but is what it is. We were going to be gone early in the morning. plan was to get up around 4, and I wanted to be quite a lot further east, and I was going to meet Dale Evans who is another, not only listener of the podcast, but he's a, he's a great photographer himself and another friend of Jason and Harlan's. I was going to meet him the next day and we were going to kind of go cruise for bears in a different area. So the plan was we were going to meet over by this junction. I was going to get up early so I could figure out what was going on and hopefully find a bear or two. So I'm happy that we didn't find this out when we were in Estes Park in the middle of town, but I'm in the campground, the full campground in uh, Mammoth at Yellowstone Park, 
And if if anybody got woken up by this and you hear this, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, Honda, in their infinite wisdom, decided if you open the door, you lock the doors with the key, because I was already in my sleep bag when I locked the door. If you lock the doors with the key fob, then you go to sleep, you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and then you open the door by reaching over and manually unlocking the door. It sets off the security alarm, and it is some kind of setting where you can't shut it off. So I'm hitting the key fob trying to shut the alarm off. My car alarm is going nuts, and it is, it's shortly after 4. So these people that, whose campsite we invaded... I'm sure we're double happy now because not only did they have neighbors, but now everybody's awake. And I shot out of the sleeping bag in my underwear because it wouldn't shut off, mm -hmm. contorted myself into the driver's seat, and took off as fast as I could. It's still sounding uh, when the car's on? Yep. It would not shut off. I, I tried everything. You're supposed to be able to hit the key fob, hit the unlock, yeah. and it shuts it down. Right. Wouldn't shut off. Turned it on, still wouldn't shut off. So I'm booking down the highway as fast as I can, trying to get away from the crowd of people who were trying to sleep. And I got four miles down the road, and the thing finally stopped. So on the side of the road, I'm laughing at myself, and I decide I probably should get dressed because if a ranger hears this thing going off, and I'm standing there in my underwear... Like you just stole it. <laughs> right. So that was going to be a bad day. So I uh, got myself dressed on the side of the road, quit laughing, and I took off driving and I thought, well, you know, I might as well carry on. So I was going to head to that location where we were supposed to meet up. And right in the middle of Mammoth, the stupid thing starts going off again. And I didn't push anything. So I have calls into Honda to let them know this is a bad idea and also find out what the what the story is, how you get this thing shut off. But it was just one of those, you know, this stuff just happens to me. This is going to be a new podcast on life's most embarrassing moments. No, I don't. At this point, I don't care anymore. Well, no, but at the moment it <laughs> happened. Crazy embarrassing. Yeah. I've had that happen with other manufacturers but I don't lock mine anymore. I sleep in. I figure nobody wants to come in there if I'm in there. I, and the light will turn on. So I don't lock mine because of that same thing. Or if I have, you know, back in the day with one of the kids with me and they've got to get up in the middle of the night, if you lock it, they open the back door or the, the hatch to get out. It sounds. But when that's happened, the fob's always shut it down. Yeah, I've never uh, heard of the fob not working. There was no shutting this thing That would be crazy when you it start pushing that and nothing's crazy. happening. Oh, did you hit the little one that is the actual the alarm one. on yeah, the phone? Two hands <laughs> hammering that baby. Because <laughs> I've had that happen too in a, in a campground. You know, you're just not thinking and it just happens. But I've always been able to hit the little alarm thing and it shuts Yeah, down. I didn't think anything of it, but nope. I was I full on did the ninja roll over the top of the driver's seat <laughs> and started that baby on the fly. And I was I was gone. <laughs> I can hear it just oh, slowly funny. fading away. Beep, 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 beep. Yeah. <laughs> and then the rest the rest of the day, 
that that day was kind of terrible because you know Dale and and his fiance drove up from Bozeman or drove down from Bozeman and we were going to spend the day visit we had never met face to face either so I was looking forward to visiting and it just started off and and I think when when he got there I was just like still shaking my head in amazement so we ended up meeting up on top of the mountain on Dunraven Pass visited for a little bit there I just got out and of course I'm cooking oatmeal because that's my staple on the road <laughs> and a busload of Australian people got off and they went and had a snow fight I mean they were up to their above their knees several of them as deep as the snow was up there and they were having a great time because none of them had ever seen snow before that moment been able to get in it so we had a good visit but then we we went back north uh, we checked the carcass area. That was no go. Did see Dale and and Kara had been able to photograph a bear uh, down below in a different location, a, a boar, black bear. And I had seen several black bears before daylight, but I hadn't seen anything that was photographable. And so that that morning was kind of shot. So we decided to travel back north, see if we could find the get into the grizz activity where it was. And actually, we did not go north. We went south. Sorry, my bad. Um, and didn't have any luck at all. And then the weather just turned to, it sleeted the rest of the day. So it was pretty much a washout. That was actually pretty much the end of the wildlife activity. It just got nasty. Everything shut down. And there was, the people were just nuts. I mean, every type of, don't do it Yellowstone behavior. I should have been documenting that. Right. There's, there's made a good video. Those don't images. do this or this or this. Bison selfies were at a premium that day. Oh, <laughs> I've done well with those. As long as their faces, you know, somebody facing away, they can't tell who it is. Some of those images have a market. Yeah. Yeah. I, my mom got one that was priceless, but. I, think we should probably, I don't think we should share that. It might be identifiable. Um, so I did have one moment that morning before we before we met up, and it was as I was as excited as I've been in Yellowstone Park since I was a kid. So what happened? I was I was headed out toward the Lamar, and I checked a couple different locations. I came back because there was, you know, this little pond that had cinnamon green wing and blue wing teal all in this small pond so i want to get a couple pictures a couple stills of them and then i take off again and i look up on this ridge and there's it's just lined with bison and you know cows and calves up on this ridge and they were all just bedded down and then i saw this on the far side of this big group of bison big herd of bison i saw this white flash that was headed up the mountain and i thought for sure okay this is a hunt and it's on. Well, then I see this brown flash. And then I'm absolutely positive. So I jackhammer the brakes, get out, set up, set the camera up, getting ready to video, checking my settings, making sure everything's good to go. I'm going to get this hunt, you know, because I'm just positive these things are going to circle and try to single off a calf because the, the bison were spread out. It was a perfect opportunity. And I am ready to go. 
Of course, it's in Yellowstone, so everybody sees me jackhammer the brakes, dust is flying, I'm flying out, setting tripod up. So people start to stop in these different locations. I grab the binoculars, and I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. I can't find either of these two animals that were flying through the end of the timber. And all of a sudden, the white one comes out the bottom of the timber, and I just let all the wind out of my system. And I go back and I start taking the camera apart and I look back up and there's the brown one and it comes out of the timber and it was a freaking pronghorn antelope and a white-tailed deer. I've never seen in my life a white-tailed deer in the Lamar Valley. But the way they were running, I knew it had to be a wolf. That was it. They were big, fast, and the one was light-colored. And I have no idea what the stupid antelope was doing up there in the timber. They're a plains animal, <laughs> supposed to be down on the flats. And the whitetail, just, I've never seen a whitetail up there at all. So I know they're there, but there's not many of them. But that's what got my attention. So I packed up and moved on. <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to give you a unique picture for their species. Oh, they gave me Different something. Yeah. Got Rush. the adrenaline going for a second. No kidding. I would have thought the same thing, though. Makes sense to see a white wolf, yeah. right? Or a, a brown Light wolf colored, together. Yep. Huh. Yeah, there was no doubt in my mind. I mean, it. Right. you see coyotes a lot of times, and you look at them a couple times, but you know they're a coyote, but you want to turn them into a wolf. But it just doesn't happen. And I'd seen a couple in the Hayden Valley. They were way, way out. Definitely not photographable. But I thought that was this was going to be the opportunity because it was the perfect spot. Great light. And those bison are right there. And yeah, it's not the pronghorn image I was looking for. Well, it is a cool spot. I mean, like I said on that last podcast, Yellowstone's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yellowstone's amazing. For the duration. You just got to capture it when the time is right. Yeah. You know, middle of the week, early in the season, there's a lot of stuff to be had there. And learn from Ron's hacks, his vehicle hacks. Don't lock your car if you're going to see His camping hacks. Camping hacks. His bring extra batteries for doing video hacks. Keep them charged. Yep. Bring Bring a video fluid head if you have one sitting at home collecting dust. Yes. Bring it. That would have been awesome. For the amount of time you were there, you saw a lot. Yeah. And that's what Yellowstone is, I I take it. You know, there's a tremendous amount of variety and opportunity. So, and I, I think this was great conversation some of the behind the scenes the video stuff the setup the trial and error something i carry it obviously doesn't work for a rental if you're flying somewhere but if it's your own vehicle it's those charger kits with the battery built in you charge at home it's got the jumper cables it's got the air compressor in it but it also has the plug-in and has the usb port on it and that's another way you can charge batteries without having an inverter um yeah, I've seen those things have come a long way and you can get a lot more life out of them. So that, that definitely is something that's on mm-hmm. the radar that I probably should throw in. They have a light on them too. If you, mm-hmm. you know, variety of things on them for just roadside assistance, but they are a power pack, but an inverter works fine for, for a vehicle where you've got, I mean, they all have those cigarette ports that aren't used anymore. So, right. And even this- well, and Yellowstone is, predominantly a car place mm-hmm. i mean because you're not gonna unfortunately although you can go hiking and and do some good stuff 
but you're going to see more wildlife if you're traveling. Yeah. You're going to get more opportunities hitting these different spots at the right times than you would just hiking down a trail. And there were one of the things that I, you know, one of the other species that I thought was a sure thing was pika. But by the time I got back to where the pika were, and I was going to try to get some video of them, by the time I got back to that location, the weather was just, and it was done. I mean, it came in and it was black and it was one of those that you just kind of know it's going to sit there for a day or two. And it did. So it, it turned to snow. And then I just sent you guys a picture the other day of there were a couple slide offs and the right. uh, Wyoming Highway Patrol had to go rescue people in one part of the state up in the Beartooths, which is right close to Yellowstone because people got stranded up there in the snow. So it'll, you know, it snows up there 12 months of the year. Really? So late so spring, you, that's not a, not a surprise. It's not uncommon. No, really. But it, it does shut down when you're doing a quick trip. You don't, you don't have room for snow days or really bad weather days. That was no. still worth it though. Do you oh, it definitely was the Harlequin it. stuff. Yeah. Are you going to put some of that up? Yeah, I'll put some notes? of that on the, on the wild and exposed Instagram. And then, okay. um, I'll throw it up on the Wild and Exposed Facebook page also. And for those using Instagram that do share it to Facebook, I mean, that's a whole other conversation that we have to fit into another podcast. But there's just that toggle. You just say share, and yep. it goes to both automatically, so it's user-friendly. But, I mean, from my experience, you got to be – from where I sit, I'm cautious with it because of the public domain issues on Facebook. So just keep that in mind with what you're posting. And on that note, what about – okay, i got one last thing on this – it's somewhat unrelated, but Instagram, which we talk about a lot because it's the platform for sharing imagery of any sort globally now. In fact, across the whole universe, I would wager. Is, <laughs> do you know what they're doing in Canada with Instagram? Did you hear about the change? I heard it's, well, I heard today that no. 10 hashtags and that's it. That's not even funny. I didn't hear that. I did hear Seriously? that today. Yeah. Well, that's I don't, not. I don't know how reliable the information is yet. I haven't checked for it out. everywhere. Somebody tell me that. Yeah. Ten hashtags across the whole platform. Or are you saying in Canada? No, per per image. Oh, no matter where you're posting from. Right. Okay. Well, in Canada, a few Canadians weeks ago, only get two. Ah, <laughs> not even funny. <laughs> a few weeks ago, they changed it so you know you no longer see the number of likes under a photo. That's gone in Canada. Every post I look at of yours, I don't know how many people have liked it. I see, I think it's two names. And it's probably somebody that I follow and link with a lot that you see. That's it. I can't tell how many likes you have on any post. And it's a new thing they're experimenting with to see how that affects engagement. Because there's that stressor about having enough likes and being popular amongst young people or anybody for that matter. Everybody gets a little charge out of getting more likes. It's part of the success of the platform. But by removing that in Canada, they're experimenting with Canada to see if that creates more engagement across the platform. And it's been interesting. So on on your own posts, if you're posting in Canada, those here know that, under the post it says insights and you click on that and then you clearly see the statistics. You can see the number of likes on everything you post. So that's still something you can supervise, but you have no idea. Look, if you go on Nat Geo 
and look at their post and it might, you have no idea. It could have 10 likes after two days or it could have 5 million likes. You can't see that anymore. Now, I'm, I think it still obviously still feeds into their algorithms and how it functions. The more likes, the more successful the picture is at staying up longer and being distributed better. But just for that viewership, it no longer has that supposed stressor attached and doesn't also influence people to hit a like just because an image has more likes because there's no way of knowing. I think part of it was also thinking that people will simply like it for what it is, not its popularity. So mm -hmm. it, it's been an interesting spin, and I don't think it's something that's it's been in the news in Canada because it it's affects things here, but you don't even see that. So, you know, we share the Wild and Exposed Instagram page. We all have si account sign-ins to that. We all engage and post on it. Since it's based there, I see the likes of everybody's if I'm looking through Wild and Exposed. So it's just, but in Canada, it's not. So I don't know if this is going to be indefinite. I think it's something they're experimenting with and might go for a few months, but curious to see where it goes and whether that will have implications elsewhere, like in the United States too. It hasn't. Well, how do they determine? I mean, do they know that your account is associated with Canada and can you just go in and say, use my, my Anchorage address and you just put that in there and then. It'd be, you know, I, I don't, so I didn't dive in to see if that's the case. So when the account was set up three years ago now, I don't know if I put Canada in there, if they asked for that, if it was North America, if there was any breakdown or stipulation that way, but there had to have been something because you know, when we set up the Wild and Exposed page, it's not subject to this. The Canada ones are, and I see that across this platform. So somehow there's, if the indicator might have been voluntary when when I set it up, I don't I don't recall it was that long ago. But they do, or whether they yeah, just... Yeah, I'm looking on yours. I can see yours. I can see all your likes. Right. I can see everything. Right. But, but there's nothing that says... CA or no, Canada or no, anything on your, like on your bio or anything. I think it, you know, personally, I like the global culture of Instagram because our world as photographers now is becoming more and more global. Our market potential is more global. We have so many people, for instance, in North America, there are so many Europeans that want to come and experience the, the wonders of wilderness and the mountains of North America. It, there are advantages and disadvantages to putting a geographic location. So I like the fact that it's not, unless people want to disclose that, which is cool too. So I, I don't think you can search for that unless the person puts it up in their bio, where they are, where they're from, what they do. I mean, most, most people who are serious photographers have a website link on their bio. You hit the website, you go to their website and you see their about page, and then you learn about them if you want. Their history's there, where they live, where they work from, that kind of thing. It's not veiled or hidden, but this is just an interesting experiment that Instagram is doing to remove the quantity of likes from being visible for its audience in the Canadian population at this point in time. I expect it will grow because I think it's been popular and it doesn't impact from where I sit. It doesn't bother me. I don't need to know how many likes you guys have on your pictures. I know I like the picture. I hit the heart. I like it. That's good enough. What's important to me is knowing which style of my imagery gets traction. So as long as I can tap into the likes and see those statistics myself, I'm not troubled by this. If they remove that 
and there's no way to understand the success of your page or your individual posts, then at that point, I'd be discouraged because we're, we're trying to grow this. I mean, there's who knows where that would go? I mean, we have the followers, right? And that's showing. That's a whole other question. We know how many followers everybody has. And that generates more success. It's just human nature. The, the bigger the followership of anybody, the more likely other people are going to say, I'll follow too. If you find somebody new and they have five followers or even 150 followers, there's this human psychological hesitation to say, well, why is there so few? Well, it's because they're new. Do you follow or do you wait for them to become more established? There's all of that. So by not having some of these statistics available for general viewing to everybody, it just, yeah, it's interesting. So I just wanted to bring that to light. I've been meaning to bring it up for a few podcasts because it's just a change here, but I, this, so how long has it been that way up there? It's been three or four weeks now. And it doesn't, I don't think this, and it's not detrimental as long as you can look at your own host statistics. I think that is important. Um, you know, I, it's just certain things and we all develop these niche audiences with social media and Instagram and, uh, anyway, we've talked about this before. I, I like to put up all kinds of wildlife, and bears are a big thing that I, I love to photograph bear species any time of year. But spring, especially, is a great opportunity, as we all know. But a bear for me gets a quarter of the traction of a moose or a caribou or an elk. And it's just because of the people out there who like my page, I guess. But it, it's interesting to follow that stuff. But then you'll see somebody who has a and equally, the same quantity of followers, and they do more and more bears and have created their page with that greater bear content perhaps more frequently, and, and that's okay. They get the traction with the bears because they developed it that way too. We're going to have to spin this into podcast part two on the psychology of social media. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to yeah. delve into the psychology of social no. media. No, I, I don't, but only as far as I want to understand it to use it to its best advantage because we right. all devote time to it. And when we devote time to it, we have an emotional investment in it. And we also have a business investment in it. You know, we'd, we'd be lying. I mean, I enjoy all of the interactions. I have legitimately developed friendships with people I would have never met otherwise through these platforms. Absolutely. Yeah. through Instagram. I'm grateful for that. And I, I enjoy all of that. And those people that interact frequently, it's great. I love it. But I would be lying to say that I don't want this to grow for business purposes. I do. I want it to grow so that I have a platform that is more user-friendly than traditional websites that reaches a global audience and highlights my portfolio in a way that will hopefully reach new con- clients. Whether that's an individual client for Prince, whether it's a, a publishing client, whether it's a client in Germany that I have no way of researching, but they found me because of my page. That's where I hope this will grow in addition to the social relationships that are generated by the contacts of these other photographer enthusiasts and individuals. So I'm invested in it. So I only, my point in bringing up the psychology and, and trying to, stay abreast of this and the potential algorithm potential of Instagram in in particular is just to try and be as successful as possible with it because we, we commit time 
regularly, if not daily, to it. Yeah, a lot of time, if you're really working it. Follow along. Get on Wild and Exposed Instagram. See what Ron was talking about. He'll put his Grizzly video up there. And go to the show notes at wildandexposed.com. You can find more of our content there. Make sure to subscribe and follow on whatever platform for podcasts that you're listening to us on. And as important as any request, go to YouTube, subscribe, give us a thumbs up on videos that you watch. That helps us to do what we love to do and to bring this podcast to you on a regular basis. And hit that bell notification on YouTube because we are going to be investing a lot of time on trips this year developing YouTube. We are excited about sharing videos to try and bring you on the adventures with us. So go to YouTube, Wild and Exposed Podcast, subscribe so you're ready, you're on board, hit the bell so when it's uploaded, you'll receive it. It's free and it'll be fun. I want to say a special thank you to Missy McKenzie. I'm going to stop right there because Ron gave me the finger. It was the index finger. It was a polite one. Before you completely close this bad boy out, one more time, if you were sleeping in Mammoth and you got woken (laughs) up by a car alarm, I am sorry. (laughs) Ron doesn't know who it was, but they sped away in embarrassment. (laughs) (laughs) And I thank you too, Missy. We wish to extend a special thank you to Missy McKenzie for all that she does producing this podcast, her hard work behind the scenes for your listening enjoyment. So until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.